When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more, then, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. This is the word of the Lord. If you've been with us uh, over the course of the past couple months, uh, we've been looking at the book of uh, Hebrews. And we are, we've arrived at chapters 9 and 10. It's really the sort of the heart of this letter. And, and so far, the author has pointed to Jesus Christ as our great high priest, as, as a king. And mainly what he's saying is you need to trust in him. You need to place your faith, your trust in him. And here, in this text, he's saying it's because Jesus Christ saves through his sacrifice, through his blood. That's why you can trust him. And you can trust him. Why? Because if he sacrificed his life for you, he must be for you. And though he died for you, though he bled for you, the author says that blood has effect. That blood has power. We're going to learn three things today. One, our helplessness. Two, Christ's power. Three, how we apply it. The helplessness of our sin, the power of Christ's blood, and how we apply that in our lives. First, our helplessness. The text begins, if you look at verse 11, it's a reference to Old Testament-style worship. He says, uh, uh, we enter a tabernacle, we enter a man-made tabernacle. That's what he says. And there, in verses 12 to 13, he says, Jesus did not enter through the blood of goats and calves and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled so that we're outwardly clean. In other other words, what Jesus did, it was not a ritual. What he's saying is, if we want to worship God, we enter a tabernacle. In the ancient days, when you worship God, you entered a tabernacle. And uh, if you wanted to get to the centerpiece of this tabernacle where God dwelled, it was the Holy of Holies. If you wanted to get there from an entrance, you actually had to pass through um, places in the tabernacle um, where uh, uh, there were altars that were set up. There were three types of altars. One was the altar of the burnt offering. Then you had the altar of incense. Uh, and, and finally, there was the Ark of the Covenant. In the holy place, there was this gold slab over this Ark of the Covenant. They called that the mercy seat. And that's where these sacrifices would take place. What does that tell you? Number one, worship is a very complicated thing. Very, very nuanced. There's lots of courts in the temple, lots of courts in the tabernacle. There were veils and curtains. There were lots of sacrifices and rituals and lots of blood being splattered everywhere. Uh, Only the high priest, one time a year, only the high priest on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, 
through the blood sacrifice could enter into the holiest place, the holy of holies in the temple, in the tabernacle. Worship was a lot of work. And in order to gain access, in order to gain entry, to lots of work. You don't just enter in. That's what that tells you. Very, very serious. You don't just enter in. You can't just go in. In the ancient times, you don't just enter in just as you are. You had to enter through the blood. Now, why the blood? This is really the heart of this point. Why the blood of Christ? I have a couple reasons why. One, a lot of you are in business. Uh, imagine you're in a meeting uh, with upper management and you're giving a presentation. And suddenly, blood starts coming out of your nose. And blood starts coming out of your eyes. And blood starts coming out of your ears. It just starts coming out all over your white shirt. What do people say when they look at you? Do they just say, go on, next slide? They don't say that, right? What they do is they reel back. When there's blood, people are appalled by blood. And uh, they get sick. They get queasy. They jerk back. Why? Because the presence of blood... No matter what ancient times or today, whenever there's blood, it means there's something wrong with you. It means that you're broken. And when you have blood that's spilling, when you have blood that's splattering, it means something is grave in your life. There's something, there's tremendous gravity, there's something gravely wrong with you. The ancients, they knew that the problems of the world would not be, it's not something that could be solved through education. The problems of the world cannot be solved through politics social progress through your wealth. The ancients knew that the problems of the world, it can't even be solved through religion or good morals. The violence is so deep. The brokenness in our lives is so deep. You need to go incredibly deep to cure it. You need to go to the blood. So blood that was spilled meant that the brokenness had mortal consequences. It was grave. The second reason why blood in the Bible it represents moral responsibility. And you don't just see that in the Bible. Uh, you know, William Shakespeare, uh, oftentimes when he mentions blood, books like Macbeth, um, blood represents guilt, moral responsibility. There's blood on our hands, we say. There's blood on our hands means we're responsible for everything. We're responsible for all things. Thirdly, blood stains. When you get blood on your shirt, it's permanent. What does that tell you? It's inescapable. You can't wash blood off like that. It's not simple. It's complicated, very nuanced. Isaiah chapter 59 sums up all of this. He says, your sins, this is God speaking to his people, your sins separated you from me, and your hands are stained with blood. What does that mean? You can't clean yourself. You can't wash yourself. Blood represents the gravity of sin. Blood represents the inescapable nature of sin, our helplessness. And verses 13 to 14 basically says that if blood animal, if blood, if the blood of animals were uh, made priests outwardly clean, how much more would the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God? He was a sacrifice. And he says, how much more will his blood cleanse our consciences? That word conscience comes up in the book of Hebrew more than any other book in the Bible. And verse 14 saying, we don't have clean consciences. What's a conscience? Verse chapter 10, if you go all the way to the end of chapter uh, 10 in our passage here, verse 22, it says that he cleanses us of our guilty conscience, our evil conscience. What's a conscience? In the Bible, 
the word conscience mean it really has something to do with your self-evaluation as to whether or not you are fit to gain entry you are fit to have access to someone or something your conscience is uh, your own self-reflection your self-evaluation of how fit you are to gain access when your child does something wrong their very first instinct their inclination is to do what number one to cover up the wrong and then to go hide their conscience tells them that they are not fit to gain access to you something is telling them that they are guilty and they can't do that when Adam and Eve uh, in the Garden of Eden when they sinned when they chose to reject God as king and chose to take matters their own life we're in control of our lives when they sin and that's what really that's what sin is what did they do first because of their shame they covered themselves and then they hid that's what they did why they do that it's because they realized they would they no longer deserved access there was a brokenness in their relationship with God that relationship with God was severed separated from God and in the end of chapter 10 verse 22 we see let us author is amazing here he says in conclusion what does he say let us draw near to God cleansed from what our guilty consciences that's what he says what that means is your conscience is telling you day by day moment by moment that you are not fit to draw near to God in other words when you reflect on yourself when you evaluate yourself when you project and imagine other people evaluating you when you look at the at God himself the creator of the universe and his evaluation of you you will not survive that scrutiny that's what your conscience is telling you you will not survive the exam there's a sense that if people really knew who you are what's really wrong with you if people saw your heart if people saw what into your mind if people saw your motives for anything you do that you know immediately you're going to be cast out you would be abandoned you'd be rejected and so what do you do you need to cover over yourself you need to hide the author of hebrews is saying that we're all dealing with the reality that we're broken that we're not what we're designed to be that we're not what we ought to be that we're flawed that we're sinful we're all broken we're broken by our sin we're broken by our pride our selfishness and we don't want to expose our sin and our pride and our selfishness so what do we do we cover ourselves we hide and as a result we have this guilty conscience in a sense we're all in these man-made tents that's the beginning of this passage he says we've entered we enter by way of this man-made tabernacle this man-made tent and we've got courts and we've got altars and veils and sacrifices because it's our way of saying that our worship is complicated because of our sin because of our brokenness we can't just walk in and so there are all these man-made rituals and ceremonies that we have to enter and, and and pass through to in some ways cover ourselves as we enter in our sins are so subterranean they're so deep our motives are so veiled our hearts are so veiled we're dealing with this now some of you immediately have a problem with this um, immediately have a problem with this thinking because you're thinking well I get that there are people out there that are really bad I get that I get there are people out there that are really sinful but me I mean I don't really feel that guilty day to day I don't really feel I'm that bad stop trying to make me feel bad about myself what you're saying is this everyone's got standards and what you're saying is 
that um, you are holding me to a particular standard that makes me feel guilty. Because according to my standards, I don't feel that guilty. You have your standards, I have my standards, it's all relative. So the key is to get rid of my sense of guilt by rejecting your standards, I have my standards. You can't do that. You can't do that. And the reason is because if everything in the world, if all of our ideals, if all of our standards are relative and there's no God, if there's no transcendent power that judges you, if there's no transcendent king, if there's no creator of the universe that judges, then on the one hand, you can get rid of your own guilt, so, so, I suppose. But on the other hand, nothing in life matters. Nothing matters. There's no meaning. Think about this. If there's no God, if there's no judge, then there's no such thing as evil because everything is relative. You have your standards. Other people have their standards. I have my standards. Then you can never get angry at any injustice that you experience in your life. You can never get angry at any type of oppression you see in the world. You can never get angry. You can never reject the evil that you see in the world because everything is relative. There's no meaning. There's no meaning to anything. That means when you're hurt, you can't say, you wronged me. Because who are you to impose your standards of righteousness or holiness on another person? It doesn't matter if you're good. It doesn't matter if you're bad. It doesn't matter if you're oppressive. It doesn't matter if you're moral. Because in the end, all of it is relative. There's nothingness. Guilt is the last possible link to a transcendent judge. Guilt is the last possible link to a transcendent power and the last possible link to true meaning as a result. Real justice. If there is a judge, there is real justice. There's there's a real relationship that we can have with God because we need a judge. We need a judge because deep inside we have guilty consciences. We need to be cleared. We need to be affirmed. We need to have access. All these things, they hang together, you see. Sin is incredibly deep, it's subterranean, it's grave, and we are helpless to clean ourselves. That's the first point, our helplessness. Now, the second point is Christ's power. The sacrifice of Christ. The sacrifice was a blood sacrifice because blood represents our brokenness. We just talked about that. But blood also represents life. You don't have life without blood. You don't have power in your life without blood. When you're born, how are you born? There's lots of blood everywhere. When blood is shed, it represents a loss of life. It represents a sacrifice. But when it's voluntary, when blood is shed voluntarily, it represents the redemptive power of self-giving, the redemptive power of sacrifice. If you understand the Bible in pieces, if you just look at the Bible in piecemeal, which, you know, unfortunately in our world today, The Bible is not the standard, and so many people go through their whole lifetime um, not really literate in the Bible, right? Uh, But So if you understand the Bible just in pieces and not as a whole, it can seem as if God is so vengeful to demand someone to sacrifice his life for other people because he has been offended. That's how it looks to us. That's how it looks, but it's not true. The whole point of this passage, if you look at chapter 9, verse 12, where it says that Jesus entered once for all, not through the blood of goats and calves, not through the the ashes of heifers. Like every other high priest who entered that way, he came as an offering of himself, his own blood, a self-giving sacrifice. 
of his life. So the God of the Bible cannot be vengeful to demand someone's blood because he's himself. I mean, think about it. Yes, sin is grave. Sin costs. Somebody must pay. Sin is an offense. God is offended. But what Jesus does is the opposite of the world religions. Every other religion says you have to pay. You have to work. You have to do something to enter in, something to gain access, something to gain access or to access that spiritual reality. But here's a God that demands blood on one hand, then offers his own on the other. He has to demand blood. Otherwise, he wouldn't be just. Evil would win. He's soft to evil. Evil would win. But on the other hand, he offers his own blood. He offers his own life. Now, some of us are thinking, why can't God just forgive? I mean, why can't God just let it go? Why can't God just, if he really loves us, why can't he just forgive us? Think about this. If you've ever really forgiven somebody in your life, and everybody here, I imagine, has forgiven somebody in their lives, if you've ever truly forgiven somebody, it comes with suffering, lots of suffering. Anyone here who says, well, I've forgiven and I didn't really suffer, number one, either you never truly forgave that person, or you weren't seriously wronged. That's what I submit to you. Why is forgiveness suffering? Think about this. If you hurt somebody, well, somebody hurt you deeply. There is a debt because there's an injustice that you've experienced. There's a wrong you've experienced. And it's almost like there's a spiritual debt that that person owes you. You can't get over it. You just can't let it go because this person has hurt you so deeply. And if you've ever been hurt or betrayed so deeply, you know you can't just let it go. There's this debt that's owed to you. I mean, that person could be sleeping in your bed, and you can't just let it go. It builds up somehow. Even if you keep it to yourself, it builds up. And you really only have two options. You can either make the perpetrator pay for that injustice. We call that retaliation. You hurt them the way they hurt you. You hurt their reputation. You, hurt, you talk behind their back. You, you try to murder them either behind their back or you murder them in front of them, right? You attack them. Or... And, you know, when they're hurting, when you hear about them hurting, how does it make you feel? You feel good. Because, you know why? Because deep inside, the debt in some way is being paid. You feel inside they deserve this. That's how they are. That's the type of people they are. And you feel good about that. It's because they're paying down. You're making them pay down the debt. But the other option is you pay down the debt. You forgive. If you make the other person pay... If you make the other person pay for the evil that they did, that they perpetrated against you, that evil, if you make them pay, what happens is you'll feel good for a little while, but that evil will pass into you. And then you become cruel and you become harsh. You become hardened. You become evil. And what happens effectively is evil wins. Evil wins. It takes over a corrosive factor in your life. But if you forgive, truly forgive, it means you're not only not making the other person suffer, you're choosing not to hate them, choosing not to gossip about them. You're trying not to ruin their lives. But it's taking their evil, the evil that you've experienced, and you're absorbing it. And there's no justice without real retaliation. Now, we can go on about this. That's a separate sermon, a separate text, separate lesson here. But the whole point of this is that mercy, what is mercy? We didn't deserve it. When you receive mercy, you didn't deserve it. It's painful to forgive somebody. There's no justice. There's no payment. It's painful. It's agonizing. It's very, very thorny. 
Now, somebody has to suffer. Either they have to suffer or you have to suffer. Somebody has to pay. Either they're going to pay the price or you're going to pay the price. Now, if that's how it is with us, when we've been hurt deeply, when we've been offended, how much more, we're created beings, how much more would an infinite creator God, how much more for an infinite creator God who has a perfect sense of justice, our, ver- our version of justice, our sense of justice is not always just, but how much more for a perfect God a creator God who has a perfect sense of justice and righteousness. When he sees our sin, he can judge us. And if he judges us, then we suffer. Or he can forgive us. And that means he's going to suffer. Either we're going to pay the debt or he's going to pay the debt. Real forgiveness is always suffering. Real forgiveness has tremendous suffering. What's the cross? It's not God demanding suffering just because he's offended. It's God coming. On one hand, he's just. The sin has to be paid for. You can't just let it go. On the other hand, it's God coming to absorb the suffering, to save, to heal. That's the meaning of Christ's blood. Jesus Christ sees the violence. Jesus Christ sees the evil. He sees the violence, he sees the sin, he sees the evil, he sees the brokenness, and he's saying, I must pay the price. If I don't pay the price, it's going to end up in judgment for all. And so what does he do to save us? He pays the penalty of our sins. On the cross, there's blood, lots of blood, blood pouring out. On the cross, Jesus Christ received the pain. Jesus Christ experienced the agony. Jesus Christ got the thorns. That's what he received. On the cross, he had no cover. On the cross, he could not hide. There was no hiding. He was naked, completely naked, completely exposed. And when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, yes, there's blood. It means I'm broken. Yes, there's blood. That means the father is appalled and he's reeling back. He turns his face away and I've lost access, complete access. Why? Because Jesus Christ was receiving the justice that we deserved, that our sins deserved. Jesus Christ was paying down the debt. He's paying the price. Jesus Christ was receiving the debt when, when the wrath of God was pouring out on the cross on Christ. When the wrath of God is pouring, the justice of God is pouring out. He was doing that so that it wouldn't pour out on us. So that the love of Christ would pour out on us. Jesus Christ received the justice of God so that we could be forgiven. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You get what that's saying? The whole point of this text, sin is too grave. The guilt is too real. The guilt is too permanent. You can't wash it away on your own. Following teachings are not going to clear a conscience. It's not going to take away your guilt. It's not going to take away your shame. It's not going to take away the failure that you feel. It's not going to take away the brokenness in your life. What would Jesus do? Bracelets, religion, works. You're trying to be your own priest. You're entering into a man-made temple, and you're trying to be your own priest, and you can't be your own priest. You can't do that. 
The author of Hebrews is saying something amazing here. He's saying to a world that understood priests, to a world that was surrounded by temples everywhere, he's saying we do not enter into a man-made tabernacle. Jesus Christ, once and for all, entered into the true tabernacle and offered himself for our salvation, offered himself. His blood was shed. That means that on one hand, we're incredibly broken, and on the other hand, there is life for us cleansing for us. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. How do you apply it? Third point, how do you apply it? We call this union. We call this union. We said before, in this, while we were looking into this book, when the gospel of Jesus Christ is taken into our lives, when you believe, when Jesus Christ died, that means you died. There's a union. And when Jesus Christ was raised again, it was a first fruit. It means we will, be raised, we will rise again with him. That's what the author says. That's what the, author, that, that's what the Bible talks about. There are two ways we can apply this. There's an event and there's a process. The first thing we're going to look at is the event, the cross. The cross is the event. It shapes us because it saves us. If you believe who Jesus Christ is, that he lived the life that you should live, he died the death that you should die, it saves us. What does that mean? Chapter 10, verse 14. For by one sacrifice, we have been made perfect forever. God, Jesus Christ, made perfect forever those who are being made holy. That phrase, made holy, it's the word being sanctified. Those have been sanctified. It means you've been set apart. Jesus Christ made perfect forever those who were set apart for God. It means in spite of how sinful you are, how broken your life is beyond imagination, your sins have been cast away, have been put away. You've been set apart. You've been made perfect forever. You didn't make yourself perfect forever. You've been made perfect forever through the blood of Christ. You've been covered in the blood of Christ. Your life is hid in the blood of Christ. That means no matter where you've been, no matter who you are, that's why we can come as we are. We can enter as we are because of the blood. And that, he says, you've been set apart. You've been made perfect forever, for all time. That's the access the author is talking about. That's the access that we need. It's not, I used to think growing up that being a Christian meant that now I have this ticket to heaven. I was living a bad life. Now I have this ticket to heaven because I believe. It's more than entry. It's more than a ticket. It's more, you have access to God. That means you have access to real justice in your life. You have access to real righteousness in your life. You have access to real faithfulness in your life. Some of us here, we've been deeply hurt. You've been deeply wronged. You've been deeply damaged. There's like this, there's a soulful post-traumatic stress that you've experienced in your life. Friends, the justice that you seek, the justice that you need, God is at the heart of that justice. To have access to God is to know that justice will win one day. The evil loses in the end. That one day, God will not let a single evil in your life go unpunished. That's what that means. That's an amazing reality. Some of you, you've placed your hopes, your hopes in life in a man or a woman that you've been looking for, a Mr. Right or a Ms. Right all your life. I've been looking for this person all my life. And that person has failed you. In some way, that person has hurt you and failed you. 
that person has damaged you in some way. You know why? The Bible says all of our lives we're looking for a real king. We're looking for a true king in our lives. Somebody who's filled with holiness. Somebody who's just perfectly righteous. Someone who lives with truth that is in his heart. That's what we want. Friends, God is at the heart of that. To have access to God. We need that access. Now you know what real righteousness is. Now you know what real holiness is. It is a person, the person of Jesus Christ. He is the one, the love of your life, the person that you need access to, the one that you've wanted all your life. He is the true king that we're looking for all our lives. Some of you, you've been betrayed, and you're working through the pain of that betrayal all your life. Who is the one that is truly faithful in life? He who sent his son to die for us. That's faithfulness. You want to talk about a love that will never let you go? That's faithfulness. The Apostle Paul writes, if God would not be willing to spare his own son, you ever doubt that God will provide for you? You ever doubt that God cares that he's faithful for you? It's the act, the access that we need, what we really need, the problem, our problems in life is not going to be solved by education, by politics. Definitely not by politics these days, right? Uh, problems in our lives are not going to be solved through politics or education or wealth, status. Your marriage is not going to solve your problems. Your children are not going to be the solution to your problems. We need access to true righteousness, true love, true kingliness, true justice. That's faithfulness. Jesus Christ is faithful. And he is good. And he is just. And he is kingly. And he is power. Access is salvation. That's the event. That's what we gain with access. Chapter 10, verse 22. Let us, therefore, he says, let us draw near to God. Access. It means we're all like priests. That's why the apostle Peter says later on, that you are a royal priesthood. Because we have access to the king, we're royal, we're, we're kings. We're sons of the king. Because we have access to God, we're all priests. You are a royal priesthood. And why did you get there? How did you get there? Because of your works? Because of good works? Because you tried hard? No. No. It's because of the blood of Jesus Christ that covers over us. On one hand, appalling. It's disgusting. On the other hand, it saves. Jesus Christ is the great high priest. Jesus Christ is the sacrifice. Now, imagine one day your friend comes up to you and he says, today I want to show you how much I love you. And then he pulls out a shotgun and shoots himself. I know it's very graphic. Let's say he does that. Does that move you? Are you going to say, oh my gosh, he loved me so much? Is that what you say? No. You're going to be horrified. In fact, you're going to be angry about it. You're going to look back and say, how could you do this? If you really love it, how could you do that? Now, remember the movie Braveheart? Have you seen the movie Braveheart? For the love of his people, William Wallace was arrested. He was tried. He was beaten. He was tortured. He was killed to the point where the very people who were mocking him as he was dying start to cry out mercy because they saw suffering. They saw the blood. They saw sacrifice and how much he loved his people. He did it for his people because of his love for his people. For their freedom's sake, he did that. Now, when you see somebody doing that for you, that moves you. 
That's why we all love movies like that. In the heart of our spiritual DNA, it's already inscribed. We're moved by self-giving sacrifice. We're moved by that kind of love. We're moved by that kind of sacrifice. You know why? If Jesus Christ just died and you didn't have a problem, if you didn't have a problem, you don't see your problem, and he just died, it will never shape you. His death, that event will never shape you. But if he died in your place and you see the gravity of your slavery, you see yourself, you put yourself in the story and you say, I am a slave. I'm the one that's gripped in my sin. I'm helpless to overcome my sin. How many times have I made resolutions to stop certain things and I just can't stop? I'm gripped by this power. How can I ever gain access knowing that I'm gripped by sin? Who can free me? The Apostle Paul says, thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. You're moved by that. His sacrifice moves you. If you see how inescapable your sin is, then you will be moved by the sacrifice of Christ. Then you will be moved by the blood of Christ that saves you because you yourself have been saved by that. You'd say, I've been bought with a price. He must have loved me so greatly, so deeply, because he paid the ultimate price and he shed his blood for me. You know what happens? Then that man-made tent, that man-made tabernacle, it's gone. It goes away. The veil goes away. The covering goes away. The hiding goes away. The rituals go away. The efforts, all the trying, the working hard to earn God's love goes away because he has earned it for you and you are deeply loved and deeply treasured by God. You go to Jesus because he's king. There is law, and we go to Jesus because he's king. But we love to go to Jesus because he saves, because so deeply loves us. That's the event. That's a lot there. It's more than just a ticket to heaven. In fact, if you've come to Jesus just because of a ticket to heaven, you probably should reevaluate why you came to Jesus. Now, the second part of it is the process. Because of what Jesus has done, it shapes us. Because of the event, there is a process. Because of the indicative, there is an imperative. There's something that, that, that shapes us here. There's a process. Chapter 10, verse 22, the author says, Because of the blood of Jesus Christ, we have been cleansed from a guilty conscience. This is the secret to the Christian life. If you've always been known as a good person, if people have always looked at you and said, that's a good person, he's a good guy. He's a solid guy, we say. We always, use that. we always say that about people. In a sense, you're in an earthly tent because your reputation is really based on you being good. Even your, your earthly reputation. So what you're going to do is you're going to constantly work and keep up. You're going to try to better yourself over and over and over again. There's a danger there. It's not a bad thing, per se. And the Christian life isn't less than that, so to speak, Right? But there's a danger there because you're really, there's a danger of depriving yourself. Right? Because if the objective reality of Jesus' death, that event has not shaped you, then your goodness, your good works is disconnected from your desires, from your money from your suffering, and that's going to lead you to lots of anxiety. There are going to be moments of great anxiety in your life because you're just constantly working, and you need to take control in your life. You need to get a grip of your own life. 
And sometimes there's going to be a distance. Because of that disconnect, you're going to experience tremendous dryness in your life. And it's going to be tremendous distance from God when you feel guilty or ashamed. Sometimes there's going to be anger. Sometimes you're going to experience envy and jealousy because you're still working and you're going to see other people and how they live. And all of life, you're just going to be comparing yourself with how other people live. You know why? Because you are still acting as a priest. You are still entering into a man-made temple and it's your blood that's being sacrificed, your hard works, your sweat, your labor, and your conscience still isn't clean. So the guilt is still there. And the pride is still there. And that's going to lead to lots of comparisons, and that's why the anger is still there. Your conscience isn't clean. You're never going to be good enough in that sense. What's a Christian? A Christian is somebody who's known not by how good he is. It's how repentant he is. And that, pre- that ultimately implies then that there is an openness, a freedom from sin. Your sins are actually exposed in a way. To the degree that you've been free from sin, you're actually really free. The sin doesn't grip you. The shame doesn't grip you. The guilt doesn't grip you anymore. Your conscience has been cleansed. You're going to say, yes, you know what? I was A and B and C and D just yesterday. And yet the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed me. How amazing is that blood? Oh, precious is the flow. That makes me white as snow. That's what you're going to say day by day by day. It's how repentant you are. Your conscience is cleansed by the blood of Christ. Sin is grave. Sin is deep. It means there's this guilt, this inescapable guilt that goes all the way to the core. That means you need a gospel that shapes more than just your behavior. You need a gospel that goes to the root, to the blood. That You begin really by admitting that you've been trying to control your own life, that you've been fighting God all your life, that you're trying to control God even now through your good works because if I'm good enough, if I feel good about myself, I've lived up to the law, I've done what God wants, then God owes me. You still look at life that way. You know, Martin Luther, the great theologian Martin Luther, he said all of life is about repentance. That means every day is a process of learning to identify things in your life that still have a grip on your life, that have a grip, but it's soulful. It's a deep-rooted grip in your life, inescapable control. And, and so what you're doing is you're identifying things in your life that you're using to really try to prove to yourself that you are okay. We do that through our spiritual resumes, but our spiritual resumes are bolstered by our earthly resumes, our successes, our achievements. So when people look well on you, that's something that you tack on to your spiritual resume. Surely I'm acceptable. Surely I'm good enough. You have to admit that you've been trying to be your own high priest because we work hard at building those resumes. We kill ourselves. We sacrifice ourselves for that. The way way parents overparent their children today, the way we live for our spouses and our marital lives today. What we give up to find Mr. or Mrs. Right, right, today. The way we give to our careers, the time, the resources, and everything else at all costs, cost of relationships, cost of healthy marriages, the way we give in that way. Even our ministries, even our ministries, the way you give at church, the way I give, I mean, we sacrifice ourselves. You have to admit that you've been trying to be a high priest by yourself still. 
and you're not perfect, and you are, you're broken, so you're not a perfect priest. You're sacrificing your blood over and over. It's endless. You're entering into the man-made tabernacle, the man-made tent. Do you know what happens when you start to admit these things and start identifying these things and asking Jesus to really, asking God to forgive you of the ways that you've been using him and using other things to bolster your spiritual standing before God? What happens is you start to live a more genuine life. That's the process. Think about this. If everybody, if your reputation is what you're using to make yourself feel good and acceptable before God, ultimately it's before God. You don't momentarily think that way. You're trying to gain approval from other people. When you're looking to gain approval from other people, it's because behind that approval, the ultimate sense of approval, we said God is at the heart of approval. You really need access to God. And that only happens by the blood, by the blood of Jesus Christ. So what happens is then you're working to get approval. And if you're working to get approval and you're trying hard to, get, uh, to gain and build this reputation, really what you're doing is you're working out of fear. And you're using, people are just a tool. Your, your relationships are really built as a manipulative uh, tool to gain access, to say, yes, I'm acceptable before God. You don't live a genuine life. You're using other people. You're stepping over other people, right? Think about all the work relationships we have. You're really using it as uh, people as stepping stones to get ahead. That's what we do at work. But if you're doing that, they're just manipulative tools to bolster your approval and standing before others and before God. Do you see that? Only the gospel, the event of the gospel that leads to the process, the process that we call sanctification, that is... That's the only thing that's going to allow you to live, enable you to live, empower you to live a genuine life, a real life where you love people because you start to become self-giving. You start to become self-sacrificing. Otherwise, all the love that you show, all the work that you do, all the ministry, all the money that you give, all of your efforts, all of your relationships, people are just tools. People are being sacrificed or you're being sacrificed with them. So you can try to clean your conscience. Christians live with gratitude. There's a gratitude. Overflowing gratitude because of overflowing grace that we've received. You're already loved. You're already accepted. You are at the heart of God's burden. You are there. You see it. Every time you look at the cross, what do you see? You are at the heart of God's burden. That's going to change you from the inside out. You're going to take the law. You're not going to disregard the law. You're going to embrace the law, right? Because at the heart of the law is what? True kingliness. Because you see the king. It's unveiled to you. You have complete access. You have complete access to righteousness. You want to be righteous. You ever fall in love with somebody? What they love, you start to love. What they watch, you want to watch. Well, you start to watch regardless. You choose to love, right? That's what happens. You embrace. Changes you from the inside out. You take the law. You obey the law. It's written into your heart. He says that in chapter 10. It's written into your heart, the core. Changes you from the inside out. One person, you have one person sitting in a church does things just to avoid condemnation. There's another person who sits in the church. He's moved by the love that has pursued him. He is moved by the love that died to save him. Which one will be shaped by access to God? Which one of those are you? Let's pray.